reading verses 9 through 20. Hear now the word of God. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we complete this uh, three-part series on this last part of Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, in which John encounters Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands. John encounters Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands or seven candlesticks. We've already looked at how John hears verses 9 through 11. Then last week John sees with his eyes. John sees verses 12 through 16, and now today, verses 17 through 20, 
John submits. John submits. Now we've already noted, but we will note it again, that our text for today presents for us a very graphic vision of Christ and of his majesty and rule and judgment. There are twin emphases in the book of Revelation, two focal points. First of all, Jesus Christ. But secondly, his church, his people. In union with this Savior, in union with him, suffering, therefore, but also being victorious. And so we find these two themes, then, all throughout the book of Revelation. You see those themes right here in this section. Chapter 1, of course, is setting the stage for the rest of the book. What kind of a Savior is Jesus? Is he simply Jesus, meek and mild, Casper, milk toast? No, my friends. He is, he is meek, is he not? He shows his humility in coming in human flesh, in being subservient, dying on the cross. Yes, absolutely, we see his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his humility, so that as Isaiah says, he does not uh, quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed. But more than that, he is a victorious Savior. That's another dimension that we dare not forget. He is a king. He is a warrior, as we sang about from Psalm 45. He is the one who has a sword. He is the one who destroys all of his and our enemies. That's the kind of Savior that Jesus is. So what kind of a Savior is he? This passage helps to answer that question. But secondly, what should be the character of the church, as we've noted, it should be holy. That is to say, called out, set apart, ek kaleo, from which we get the word ekklesia, or church. Ek meaning out of, kaleo, to call. Called out of, called out of the world, and called unto God. The church is holy. The church is one. It, it, she is organically united. The church is one and Catholic or universal. The church goes through the same experience of salvation. The church is faithful in testimony even unto death. There's going to be more about this later, but as we've already noted, verse 9, your brother and companion in the tribulation. The church is word-based, word-based because it was for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, that this is why John was in exile on that island of Patmos. She is spirit-filled. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was caught up. I was, I was as John says, he, he was um, energized by the spirit. And, of course, the church is distinctive, unlike the world that does not keep the Sabbath day holy. The church does 
honor the fourth commandment. Well, a couple of weeks ago or so, we looked at how John hears. There's the description of John. And then what he heard, what did he hear? Verse 11, the Lord Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Lord willing, next week we will start to consider the first of those seven letters to the churches, starting with Ephesus. And then what does John see? Verses 12 through 16, having heard this, this loud voice like a trumpet, he turns and he looks and he sees. He sees these seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. But more than that, in the midst of those seven lampstands, he sees the Son of Man. That is to say, the Lord Jesus. The one who is the Ancient of Days, with head and hair that are white, that you can hardly even look at, like snow under the sunshine. His eyes, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, having put through the having been put through the fire. His voice like many waters, like great, like a great Niagara Falls. And then what does he have in his right hand? Seven stars, burning suns, seven stars stars in his right hand. And out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. And my friends, his face was such that just like Moses could not be looked upon by the people in their rebellion and their sinfulness and their dullness, even so here we see that his countenance, his son, was like the sun. His, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, quite a picture. So how does John react? Well, John submits. John submits. Notice John's reaction. He fell at his feet as a dead man. He fell at his feet as a dead man. He was astonished and he was afraid at Christ's majesty and glory. And I dare say that if you or I had been there, we would have done the same. He was just overwhelmed. He fell at his feet as a dead man. You know, it's interesting that this is not the first time that we see this kind of, of reaction uh, to the Lord Jesus in his in one of his pre-incarnate appearances in the Old Testament, say, before uh, he actually took on human flesh. In Joshua chapter 5. You remember the story? In Joshua chapter 5, as the children of Israel were about to, to fight the battle of Jericho, children, Joshua would fit the battle of Jericho. Joshua 
lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, No, neither one. But as commander of the army of the Lord of Yahweh, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. He was overwhelmed. Joshua was overwhelmed by that pre-incarnate appearance. If you look at Ezekiel 1, chapter 28, this, remember we, we had read from Ezekiel 1 some weeks ago because it, the terminology is similar to what we find in Revelation. It's part of the apocalyptic literature, as uh, we to use the technical word. And after this amazing vision of, the, uh, of, this, um, uh, of what Ezekiel saw, this, of, of the glory of God, verse 28 of Ezekiel 1, like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then chapter 2, and he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak. To you. Again, it's interesting. He goes on to say, And the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. Isn't that interesting? Very similar, right? The, the work of the Spirit, the overwhelming nature of the vision, very similar to what we find uh, here in Revelation chapter 1. In, uh, uh, in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, Sorry, Daniel chapter 8. We read verses 17 and 18. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. There, it was actually an angel that he saw. That even at that, Daniel was overwhelmed by the appearance. And of course, you remember the when the Apostle Paul was was uh, converted. Acts uh, chapter nine, Acts uh, chapter nine, verse four, uh, uh, chapter nine, and uh, uh, verses three and following. As he journeyed, as Paul journeyed, or Saul then, came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And of course, Saul was overwhelmed. He was blinded by that. 
He was blind for several days when he came, was led by the hand into Damascus. My friends, that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 1, is that John is overwhelmed by this vision of Jesus. And we, you and I, need to have this kind of vision of the living Christ. And by the way, let me pause here just a moment and say this is one of the reasons why we don't make pictures of Jesus. Because there's no way, among other things, there's no way that we can portray Jesus. There's no way that we can do that. There is no way that we can possibly, I mean, apart from the fact that it's a violation of the second commandment because we would worship by means of this image. Every time you see an image of Christ, quote unquote, what are you doing? You have two reactions. Either it's going to be of use to you and your devotion, or it's not. Well, if it's not, then it's, what's the point? If it is, that is the problem with it, because you're worshiping by means of that image. So let me pause here just a moment, and children say, do not, do not watch movies about Jesus. Do not, do not. Because when you see Jesus portrayed on the screen, what do you do? You're going to think of that actor instead of the real Jesus. And that's idolatry. Do not do it. Do not do it. Do not scar yourself for life. I've seen these things. It, it's inevitable that you are scarred by that. Don't subject yourself to the passion of the Christ, any of these, the robe, whatever it may be, do not do it. The Jesus movie that a lot of evangelicals play all around the world, it's idolatrous. Don't do it. Because the way you know who Jesus is is by means of his word. The way you know who Jesus is is by how he is portrayed. He's portrayed as, as mild, as meek. He's portrayed as humble. But he's also portrayed as the one with the sword coming out of his mouth. With, as this glorious Savior, as, we, as is portrayed here, as is described here by John. But we cannot possibly actually do that justice in terms of any reconstruction of that that we could do. And so, my friends, please be aware of that. We need to have this kind of vision, but our vision, of course, is with the eyes of of faith, we need to have this kind of vision, this kind of conception, this kind of understanding of the true Jesus, the living Christ. And so we see John's reaction, but then we see Christ's comfort. What does he do? He laid his right hand and gave a healing touch during his earthly ministry. Often he gave a healing touch. And here he reaches out to comfort John. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. His words of comfort and cheer were necessary and important. Jesus gave such comfort on other occasions. Remember in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. That's what he says to John. That's what he says to you and to me. He gives words of comfort and cheer. And then he goes on to say, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. Even as earlier in the chapter we read that he is the Alpha and Omega, now he says, I am the first and the last. We see this in, uh, in the, the church uh, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 when he writes to the angel of the church in Smyrna and uh, verse 8 these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life now you know when when Jesus is saying this you know what he's doing he's claiming to be gone he's claiming to be gone Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done all these things, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. I am the first and the last, says Jehovah. And Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, besides me, there is no God. So by using this terminology, Jesus is showing He's the Alpha and the Omega, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the creator of everything. He is the consummator of all things. He's the one who will sum up all things in himself. And he's showing indeed that he is God. I am the first and the last. And he goes on to say, I am he who lives and became dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So Jesus now lives. Why does he say that? Well, because he had been dead for three days. He had gone through the experience of death. I am he who lives. Now I became dead, but then he will never die again. Behold, lo, behold, the grave could not hold him. I am alive forevermore. And then you see the little word, Amen. Now, this possibly is John's reaction to Jesus. Or it could be Christ's confirmation of his resurrection. This putting the stamp on it, saying, Indeed, truly. Putting the stamp on his resurrection and being truly God and truly man in one person. But Jesus goes on to say, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. He has not only experienced death, 
My friends, he holds the keys of death. The keys of death. You know, if you have the key, you are showing that you are the owner. Right? It's your house, you have the key. It's your lockbox, you have the key. It's yours. You have the authority over it. You're the owner of it. And so when Jesus here says that he holds the keys of death, he is showing that he is sovereign over death. He has control over death. Nothing is going to take him by surprise in terms of the reality of death. Indeed, he is the one who is in charge of death. He is sovereign over the day that you will die. He knows when every one of us here is going to die. And of course, he, this is in terms of temporal death. But my friends, he also has the keys of death in terms of eternal death. For he is the one who, is, who has sovereignly chosen those who are his and who will not experience eternal death. And so he says here, I have the keys of death and of Hades, or the place of the dead. Sometimes we say of hell. He is the one who can open and no man can shut. He is the one who can shut and no man can open. Jesus rules over Satan and hell. Well now, having experienced Christ's comfort, John now hears Christ's instruction. Notice what he says, write, therefore, write the things which you have seen. So write, in other words, put it down so that it will be preserved. Put it down. Write the things which you have seen, what you've already seen, what you've already witnessed. Write the things which are, which exist, and write the things which shall take place after these things, the things in the future. And then fourthly, today, in terms of John's, John's submission, we see Christ's explanation. He explains what the seven stars are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, commentators have proposed several different possibilities, literal angels. Gabriel, Michael, and so forth, that type of, of spiritual being, or the spirit of the churches, or the genuine members of the body of Christ in the visible congregations, the ones that have been called that are in the visible church, but the ones that have been called, or the officers of the churches. Now, if we were an Anglican church or Episcopalian church, I'm sure the preacher would probably tell you that this is a reference to a bishop. Of course, we don't believe in bishops in this sense, and uh, I don't think that that is what is indicated here. Or a preacher among elders. In other words, you have, you have the elders, the presbyters, and yet one of them is the preacher, the minister, if you will, who is the one who usually ministers the word, usually speaks, brings the message. He's an angelos. He's a, an angel. He's a messenger of God. 
or we could say the officers, particularly the elders, taken collectively. Now, as you evaluate these, I would say, first of all, it would be difficult for John to write to angelic beings. I don't think these are literal angels here. Nor do I think the idea of the spirit of the churches, or the invisible church within the visible church, I don't think that does justice to the text either. The word angelos means messenger, as we've already noted. Um, in my, under, in my way of taking this, I believe what is being referred to here is the elders taken as a whole. For elders have a special responsibility to shine forth like bright stars in their personal morality as examples to the flock. There is dignity in the office of elder, presbyter. And like angels, they need to be holy and pure and they bear witness to the true light of the world to enlighten others as messengers. It's possible this is a reference maybe to the preacher, but it's also possible this is the elders as a whole, the presbyteroi, the presbyters as a whole in the church, or indeed the church could be the presbytery. And the seven lampstands, we are told, are the seven churches. The church, of course, is the light of the world. And seven, as we know, is pointing, the number of perfections pointing to the church as a whole. Well, I have two points of application today. The first is this. Remember who Jesus is as king, priest, and prophet. Remember, children... If you don't remember anything else today, remember who Jesus is as king, priest, and prophet. As king, he reigns over his church. That's what we see here. And he tramples down his enemies. He protects us. And he vindicates his honor as he subdues all of his and our enemies. He is king as priest. He operates as well. In this vision, he has already done the work of sacrifice. As we noted, his robe goes down to his feet. He has already made the offer of sacrifice, as it were, at the altar. The work is done. And yet, he also, as priest, ever lives to make intercession for us. And as prophet, he speaks... With his loud voice, he speaks with power and authority. He gives revelation for John to write. Write these things, he tells him. Indeed, you notice verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars. Indeed, Jesus as prophet is going to reveal the mystery including the secrets of the text. I imagine most of us like a good mystery. But we like to know the end. We like to have the story come to a conclusion. Well, there's a mystery here. And Jesus is going to reveal the mystery. And so remember who Jesus is as king, priest, and prophet. And finally, remember Remember, my friends, that this glorious Savior walks in our midst too.
with eyes blazing, seeing right through you and me. Jesus is here. Walking in the midst of this candlestick. What is he seeing right now? What is he seeing? We'll have more opportunity to pursue that as we go on to the letters to the churches starting, Lord willing, next week. But remember, this glorious Savior walks in our midst too. And may God give us the grace then not to depend upon our goodness, our sincerity, our works, but by His grace to depend upon the very sacrifice of the Savior by embracing Him by faith, by submitting to Him, by loving Him, by adoring Him, by worshiping Him, who is this amazing, beautiful Savior whose head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, His voice is the sound of many watchers, in His right hand, seven blazing stars going sharp two-edged sword. May God give us the grace not to have some bland faith in God but a living faith in this Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray uh, that Thou wouldst be pleased to apply this message to us by Thy Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that He uh, would indeed walk in our midst and that He would give us not only the comforting touch but the healing touch in terms of our unclean lips. And so, Lord, uh, please... Work graciously, we pray. Work graciously in this flock, in this congregation. Work graciously in all branches of thy true church around the world. Bring about reformation and revival. Oh God, revive us again. Revive us again. Revive us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, please turn to...